Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Dear ones, we're so honored today that you've joined us on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. My name is John Russin. And if you've listened to us for a while, you already know that. And I'm here with my partner in crime, Pastor Frank Friedman. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing very well, my friend. It's a, it's a beautiful day in Christ. <laughs> ah, well, that's good to know. Is How about outside in the weather? Is it beautiful outside? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fascinating, John. You know, you spent many years here in South Louisiana. The Gulf waters last week were 93 degrees in June. That is not a good sign for hurricane season. But today we've got a little cooler weather. So hopefully that water will cool too. Well, that's that way you can be warm and enjoying the waves before the storm hits. <laughs> well, friends, if you join us uh, for the first time, you've caught us uh, in our current series. Frank and I are talking through Paul's epistle to the Colossians. The reason we chose is because we believe it's one of the best for highlighting what we think is the most important issue in scripture, the supremacy and sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Frank, last time we were finishing up the end of chapter one, and we were spending most of our time talking in verses 24 and 25 about Paul's perspective on suffering, on his suffering specifically. And we saw that it was a purposeful suffering, not a consequence of his actions for doing something dumb, but it was for the church, for the Colossians in particular, and for all of us, Frank, including you and me. So, I want to touch on just a few points uh, to expand our chat on suffering. And I want to bring up uh, a thought that we finished with last time. We asked the question, why is suffering necessary? And Paul told us, he said, to make the word of God fully known. In other words, my friend, it means not only to advance God's kingdom, but to advance God's kingdom in us. Because really, that's the only way, Frank, that Father's kingdom advances. It's through us as kids. You know, I was thinking about that. And there are so many movies and TV series out there that portray this battleground between God and Satan. Like it's a constantly ongoing battle. Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Battle's over. God won. Christ is victorious. But the struggle now is for our minds. Where we will set them, Frank, you know, scripture tells us, set our minds on things above. So that's where the suffering comes in, because the battle for our minds is so important as we face circumstances that make us struggle. So why is this battle for the mind so important, Frank? Well, John, you know, ever since the Garden of Eden, when man fell, man became separated from God. And of course, that has all been overcome in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But man bought a lie that he shall be as God. And even though we've been redeemed, returned to Christ, maybe we could put it returned to sanity, because it's certainly insanity to think that a human being could be God. 
but that lie continues to influence us. I don't know if there's a man or woman alive that understands how blitzed humanity was by that fall, by that deceptive lie. I have people in my office all the time that I deal with, and I tell them, you have a God complex. And they say, no, I don't. I'm a Christian. I know there's only one God. But then I ask them, do you feel like you have to be strong? Do you feel like you have to be in control? Do you feel like you have to have the right answer all the time? Well, see, those are all attributes of God. And so there's almost, John, a vestige, if you will, these vestiges of that lie in our thinking process and in our feelings. And so when suffering comes our way, it obviously demonstrates to us that we're not up to the demand of living in a fallen world independent of God. And so suffering returns us to a dependency that we might not recognize that we need when everything is going well. So I would clarify, do we absolutely need suffering in our lives? Probably not if we all thought correctly all the time, <laughs> but we don't think correctly all the time. And so as C.S. Lewis once wrote, pain is God's megaphone. It's a way that he gets our attention and returns us to the intimate walk of dependency that we were designed for in God. So for the most part, suffering is necessary. And it's, it's a gift to us. We talked about this last time. It's a gift to us from the hand of God, a gift wrapped in dark paper, as I think is what we called it. But it's still a gift from our father because it's the most loving, constructive, and redemptive thing he can do for us is to part that hedge as he did in Job 1 and let the enemy in. That's tough to take, isn't it? Well, it's just like Job ended up saying, I used to think I knew you, <laughs> but now through what I've been through, I have found you in a way I never knew you. It's the same with the Apostle Paul. When he got his thorn, the first cry is, take it away. I don't like to hurt. But when God revealed to him, you'll be finding me as your strength in ways you would have never known. Then Paul says, well, then bring on the thorn. It's maybe a, not a desired issue, but certainly one that we can thank God for when we come to know him in a way we never knew him. Yeah, because uh, how many of us have been through the valley of the shadow of death and come out the other side, seeing that our father has been faithful in ways we never even thought he could be faithful and have a sense of just awareness and intimacy and closeness that just wasn't there before, simply because mm. he allowed us to go through that valley. Now, he never left us, but he allowed mm -hmm. us to go through that valley uh, so that we had nothing else except his staff, his rod, to teach us, to support us, to correct us, because really, he wants us to think right. You said sanity earlier. That's right, because really, <laughs> he's restoring us. He's restoring our mind, our emotions, and our will. You know, Psalm 23 says he restores my soul. He's bringing us back aligned more closely to true north, so that we think, feel, and choose the way he uh, has created us in Christ to think, feel, and choose. And in order for us to do that, 
there have got to be challenges along the way that force us to rethink how we're doing life. And it's, as I said, it's the most loving, constructive, redemptive thing he can do for us. But I tell you, bro, it is absolutely unpopular. (laughs) Okay. One more thought. We didn't mention this last time, but our Bible talks about a number of crowns. And one of those crowns is the crown of suffering. Two verses mention that James 1 says, blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial. Uh, For when he stood the test, he received the crown of life. And then Mm. that is echoed in Revelation 2, the letter to the church in Smyrna. The scripture says, hey, I know your tribulation. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. The devil's going to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So this crown of life seems lockstep tied to suffering. So talk to us about the crown, Frank. What does that mean? And and why is it a crown? Why not just a pat on the back or the knowledge that we know Jesus better than we did before? What does the crown signify? Well, John, you know, it's interesting. A crown is usually associated with reigning or ruling. And this is a very deep question, but we'll try to make it as simple as possible. I ask Uh, only deep (laughs) questions, Pastor Frank. (laughs) And I try to keep it simple for my brain. You know, man was designed to reign, to rule over this earth. We know that from Psalm 8. But man in Genesis had dominion, but man gave that dominion away to Satan. It required a man to take it back. Of course, there was no man worthy to take it back. That's why Jesus had to become man, the God-man, who could take the kingdom back from Satan and then as the representative of man, give that authority and right to rule back to man. So now Satan is no longer reigning and ruling over this world, although he does exercise freedom, it is now ours again. And that means not all men, but the men and women in the body of Christ. And so when we function as those who do reign in this world through the reigning of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be given crowns. And we lay hold of that by faith. And so he has the crown of righteousness for us, but he also has this crown of suffering in this present age as we endure the onslaught of the enemy who continues to fight a battle that he's already lost. And so this crown is very closely associated with the walk of faith. And I think it's just incredibly powerful that in a book of Hebrews, The Holy Spirit said, the world is not worthy of those who continue to walk by faith and don't get delivered from their suffering. And so when he says the world is not worthy, he puts this crown of suffering on us. And then, of course, as we know later in the New Testament, we will give those crowns back to him because we'll recognize it was his life in us that allowed us to endure. So that's a mouthful, John, but uh, we recognize that 
There is one who reigns, it's Jesus Christ. Uh, there's no such thing as random events. And because that's true, we walk by faith and we have that crown put back on us for we recognize we reign with him once again, even though at the present we suffer. I, so that's that, a mouthful, but I, that's the synopsis I would yeah, put yeah. on it. You know, the, the whole idea of reigning with Christ, uh, this crown is, is uh, I, I checked on it. It is the woven circle. Just sort of think of it like a wreath that victors received when they won in a competition. Okay. And it's honor. It's, it's a way to elevate and esteem and say, you have won the prize. So this is an incredible thing that our father will choose to share his honor and glory with us like this. But at the same time, it doesn't just come to everyone. You know, Paul tells us in first uh, Corinthians nine to run such a way that we will win that prize, the prize, the suffering, We've got to embrace it. We've got to devote ourselves to the race so that when the end is there, we will be victorious. We will have trusted Christ consistently. We will have relied on him when there was no other outlet for rescue for us. Uh, so there are a lot of choices that we make to align our lives with our father in order to line us up to receive this crown. It just doesn't come to everyone, my friend. It mm -hmm. comes to those who run to win the prize. I was having this thought as you were talking, listening and processing. It's his life in us that we lay hold of. And so this life still brings suffering, just as it did to Jesus. The, the world loves darkness. The world doesn't love light. And so naturally, we're going to suffer in this world. But when we bear up, it's his life that empowers us to bear up. So again, just as he reigns, we reign. But that is laid hold of, as you said, by faith. And that's how we reign in this life, even through the midst of suffering. And, you know, again, that's why we lay those crowns back to him. It's weird, John. He bestows honor and glory on us, recognizing his life being manifest in us as we trust him. Uh, it's just amazing, mind-boggling to ponder. You know, Paul continues that thought, Frank, continues his, his uh, discussion on why he suffers and why we suffer. Uh, when he picks it up in verse 26, and he says, uh, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now reveal to the saints. That's the gospel. Mm, and so there's, here it comes. <laughs> here it comes, man. Uh, you know it. And so suffering, it, it gets us back to the same question. Why do we suffer? Because we will not understand the mystery. And the way that Father reveals that mystery through his, to his saints is, is through suffering. So talk about the word mystery, Frank, and uh, let us know what this means. Oh, this is such a beautiful passage, John. It's really the essence of the New Testament. It's really the essence of what the Old Testament looked forward to and really begins in the book of Genesis with what we had by virtue of being our created, created by God and for God to live with and from God, but Adam lost. Mystery. 
this is not like an Agatha Christie or a murder she wrote for those who remember that old TV show. Who did it? Who did it? Mystery in the Bible means something that was not previously known, but now is screamed from the mountaintops. And the idea is that everybody can know this. And because the mystery is about Jesus, it's that everybody can know him. Isn't that glorious? Oh, my goodness, yes. And so this whole idea of mystery uh, needs to be, you know, it needs to be fleshed out in our lives because we will never understand the gospel and all that Father is heralding from the mountaintops until we can embrace the suffering that he allows into our lives. And this is what Paul says right after that in the next verse, verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, and this is what makes me choke up, Frank, the riches of the glory of this mystery. This is not just some secret thing that he unveils. It's rich, it's glorious, and this is the glory, Frank. It's Christ in you, Christ in me, Christ in us the hope of glory. My friend, we can spend hours here, but I want to dive in with one initial thought and then we'll run from there. Christ in you. You know, every Christmas we sing the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, which means God with us. But this is not God with us. This is God in us. That's wrapped up in this mystery. What is the difference, Frank, between God with us and God in us. And why is that important? Well, God with us gives to my mind the idea of God holding our hand. So we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and he walks with me through that valley of the shadow of death. He was with the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings. But because he was with us, man, and I hate to say this, John, but I don't know any other way to say this, had the ability to run from his withness. That's what Adam did that very first time he fell. That's what David did. He left the withness to run to Bathsheba. This is what all men in an old covenant economy could do. Now, God, because he's such a God of great love, mercy, and grace, ran after them with his witness. But probably the chief example of that would be Jonah. You know, Jonah tried to run from God, and God ran after him. But in the new covenant economy, this, this all changes. He's in us. It's impossible to try to run from God and God doesn't have to run after us because he's in us. And this transfers everything about God and everything about our relationship with God. We don't have to pray, please don't take your spirit from me like David did because he's in us. We don't have to pray for the power of God to come upon us because it's in us. Uh, we don't have to um, pray for wisdom to come down from heaven. Wisdom is inside of us. I put it this way. I've been putting it this way for years. All that God is, he is to us, 
in us and through us. And this is not an idea that's to be apprehended intellectually so much as it is a relationship, uh, celebrated relationally. Oh my. Uh, Jesus Christ is our life. And therefore he's our relationship to all things. If I can just apply this and then run with it, John. Jesus' relationship to God is now my relationship to God. Jesus' relationship to temptation is now my relationship to temptation. His relationship to the law is now my relationship to the law. And maybe this is the most mind-boggling of all. His relationship to you, my brother, is now my relationship with you. Jesus Christ changes my relationship to everything and everyone because he is in me to be through me to all those other things and people. It's, it's like you said, we could dive into this for hours. Yeah, that, that last phrase was stunning. But my friend, listening to your talk, I've gotten this overwhelming desire to meddle. So here we go. I'm just going to kick a few anthills. Okay. Okay, here we go. What do we hear in so many churches as we pray? Father, we come before you today. Mm. Ooh. Father, please be with me today. Ooh. Father, please keep me from sinning today. And so... All these things are, are prayed with great intent, with the purest of motives, but with absolutely no wisdom whatsoever. Yeah, complete uh, void of understanding yeah, they don't of what understand. Jesus accomplished in you his know, finished work. And so this mm -hmm. is where, you know, we talk about this all the time in our writings and just our chats, that the modern church does such a thorough job of blending the old and new covenants so this whole thing, Father, we come before you today, echoes the tabernacle, and it has no place uh, in the life of a believer. Father, please be with me while I travel. Well, where do you think he is? You left him home? He's in a closet? <laughs> He's yeah. in you. Uh, and Frank, this runs through so many prayers that we pray, so many thoughts that we have, so many songs that we sing. Oh, my! I tell you, brother. It is just, it's just a thread of, I want to say deception because it is, but the tragedy is that it's confusion and people walk around going, well, Christ is in me, but I got to come before him. So they live in this crazy tension, none of which makes sense. We were in this church the other day and we heard, they made this statement, we were and are sinners. Well, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> mm. And so the confusion is everywhere. I know I'm kicking anthills. And to really unpack this, we've got to sit down with people and just pick apart the little deceptions. But this whole idea, Frank, about Christ in you and what that means and how it changes everything is just so largely missed by the modern church. And it just grieves me. It really does. Well, John, I think the key is that our listeners understand why we kick anthills. 
It's not to point fingers at the church, to put down the church. It's to fight for the church by getting people to think. This is one of the clearest ways I've seen this, John, is we're going to church. And gosh, we're not even thinking about those words. We are the church. People say they're going to God's house, the building, to meet God. God doesn't dwell in a building anymore. He dwells in people. The reason God is going to be in that building is because the people that assemble in that building are bringing God with them because he lives in them. And so these are, again, you know, there's a motive here, John, and the motive is love. We want people to think of what Jesus accomplished in his finished work. And when we say finished work, we've got to clarify this. He said it's finished on the cross, but that really was inclusive of all the work of Jesus, not just that he died for our sins, but that he was then buried and then resurrected. And then, and this is the part many people leave out, that he ascended back to heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father and then send his spirit to live inside of us. That's the finished work. And even when we say that, his work is finished. Ours is not. Ours is to lay hold of that finished work, lay hold of the spirit of God by faith, and then walk with him, in him, and let him express his life through us to the world. This, it's, it's so glorious, John, we, we almost don't have enough words to describe it. But yes, we, I, so many people are missing out because they are mixing old and new covenants and asking for what they already have. Yes. That's tragic. Yeah, it is. Well, our time is starting to wrap up, my friends. But I want to finish with just three words from verse 28. We'll pick the rest of this up next time. But three words from verse 28, the first three, because I think it captures everything we've been talking about. Paul says, in him we proclaim. Frank, this is so important in my mind. Uh, We're not here to proclaim a grace message, a grace doctrine. We're not here to, to have a grace teaching. We are here to proclaim the person who is grace, Jesus Christ. We are here to proclaim him. So many times we're talking about the confusion in the modern church. Uh, people look at graces like some, some substance that God hands out, like a dollop of this or a dash of that. But, uh, but that is so far from true. Because grace is a person. Titus 2 tells us that. And that person doesn't come upon us like a dollop. That is old covenant. He comes upon us to live inside of us once and for all. So it's him we proclaim, Frank. Not a message, not a doctrine, not a teaching, but a person who wraps up 
all of our suffering, who wraps up all of the mystery, who is the center for everything Paul is trying to teach right here. It is Jesus. He's the answer to every question, the solution to every problem, and the only thing we need for life and godliness is Jesus Christ. Okay, man, wrap us up. Well, John, because that is true, that's why there's so much confusion, because the enemy must concentrate his attention on keeping people from understanding that Christ is in them. And if he can't keep them from understanding that and they gain understanding, then the next best thing he can do is try to pervert that understanding. And I would just call attention to the rest of that verse that you brought up, that Paul says he is striving, and that Greek word means agonizing. And see, that's where our work comes in. Our work is to warn every man of anything or anyone that detracts from Christ so that we can present every man, every woman, complete in Christ, meaning that they live their lives in a relational intimacy and dependence, living in him and from him, as Paul said in the book of Acts, the God in whom we live and move and have our very being. And this God lives in us. It's so glorious. It's mind-boggling. It will be the love song of heaven for all eternity of worshiping the Lamb who made it all possible. Hallelujah. <laughs> Friends, you've been listening to Frank and John on the Our Resolute Hope podcast as we've been uh, chatting our way through the epistle to the Colossians. If Father has ministered to you today, please visit our website, ourresolutehope.com. Um, hopefully the reconstruction is all complete, so everything's there. We've got a bunch of books there, free eBooks for subscribers, newsletters, devotions, etc., all centered on the incredible truth of Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, and as Frank so eloquently says, our very life. We'd love to hear from you. Pop us an email, sign up for our newsletters. Let us hear from you. Check us out on the other social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram. We've got a YouTube channel. So like, subscribe, ring that bell so you won't miss any new installments. And we humbly ask you to consider supporting our Resolute Hope with your prayers and with your finances. Uh, we cannot do this without you. We cherish every partner we have. And we invite you to join us as we herald together the greatest news ever, that Christ is our life. And as always, we close with this reminder from Hebrews chapter 6, that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Peter calls it a living hope. Frank and I call it a resolute hope, one that's stable, steadfast, one that is never shifting. And that hope is Jesus. So today and always, choose hope and choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com. 
and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.